And this is Dan. Together we pastor Hope Culture Church in Elgin, Illinois. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. We hope it encourages you and inspires you. Here's today's message. Everybody, how are you doing today? Good? I'm doing well. I love worship. I love Palm Sunday. It's good to be together. You got the palm branch going. Thank you. Uh, it's just so good. What I love about Palm Sunday is the, kick, the kickoff to Holy Week, to Passion Week. It's leading up to what we all know is next week, Resurrection Sunday, a big day where we celebrate that Jesus is alive. He's risen. He's king. But the good news is we don't have to wait a week to celebrate, right? We can celebrate that weekly. We can celebrate that daily. We can celebrate that minute by minute and hour by hour in our lives. Um, we don't have to wait. We can celebrate today that Jesus is alive. I like to think that um, he's not just a way. He is the way. He literally came and said, I am the way. He is the way to relationship with the Father. He's not just a truth. He's just not a good teacher with some good suggestions. He is the truth. And he offers us eternal life. And he's worthy of our worship and praise this morning. It's just such a, a fun week, a big week as we head into Holy Week. Let's pray together. God, would you speak to us through your word this morning? God, would you remind us of who you truly are? God, would we live our life in light of the truth of who you are? Would, would our thoughts and affections and actions be different because of the reality that you are king, that you are risen, and you are Lord? We love you. Would you speak to us this morning? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but you were in a conversation and you didn't really realize who you were talking to. Because, you know, sometimes we talk differently depending on who we're talking to. Like, you talk differently to your mom than you do to, like, your son or daughter. Like, you talk differently to your coworker than you do your parents. You talk differently to your friends than you do your professor. You, like, you talk differently depending on who you're talking to. And sometimes you catch yourself in the middle of a conversation, and you're like, I don't actually know who this person is. Like, I don't know how I'm supposed to be functioning. And it's not that you're changing who you are. It's just that there's a, there's a different amount of respect or honor depending on this person's position. Well, a few years ago, um, before we were well-connected at Judson and sitting on the Spiritual Council and, and all of that, we went to an event that Judson was putting on, and we met somebody, and we were chatting and talking about how, what we were doing and what God was doing and all of this stuff. And, and then partway through, I was just like, so what's your role? Like, what do you do at Judson? And he goes, well, most days I'm the president. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this is Dr. Kroom. I didn't know that. This was the very first time I met him, and, you know, we've become close over time since then, but it was just one of those moments where I didn't even realize who I was talking to. And it's not that I would have really changed anything I said or changed what I did, but there's just a different lens when you know who you're talking to. And I really want to, as we approach the story of what happens on Palm Sunday, kind of look through that lens of who we see Jesus as changes our response to him. That our understanding of who he is changes how we're going to live and respond and act. And so I want to look at this story, this well-known story of Jesus entering Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, palm branches being waved. And my prayer is that no matter how familiar you are with the story, or if it's your first time hearing it, that Jesus speaks to us through his word. So let's go ahead and open up. We're going to be in John in the beginning. We're going to jump around to a few of the different gospels to kind of get a wide view picture of what's happening. So this is John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, 
Some of you remember Lazarus. He's the one who Jesus raised from the dead. He got there. Everybody was like, you're too late. He's already dead. And Jesus wept. And it wasn't weeping just because he didn't know, he didn't know what was going to happen. He was weeping because he cared about them and he cared about Lazarus. But then he speaks a couple words and Lazarus comes back to life. And so this is that Lazarus, the one who Jesus raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Probably be a good thing to do, you know. If Jesus raises somebody in your family back to life, you should be like, maybe we should thank him. Throw a little dinner party. And so they're having a dinner in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took out a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. One of the disciples, Judas, you guys, most of you know him. He's the one who ends up betraying him. It even says, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? Like, this is not a good stewardship of resources, guys. It was a year's worth of wages. And he didn't have the right heart in this. If you look in verse 6, he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should have this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. And this is an interesting little story. And this is all on the way before Jesus gets to Jerusalem. The part of, Sunday, the part of Palm Sunday we're familiar with, this is like en route to there. And he's en route, and they're having this dinner party, and they're thanking him for who he is. And, and Mary breaks out this expensive perfume. And it's not perfume like we would think about it. It would be a little bit more spicy, not like as sweet. And it would really fill the room, like the whole house. It wouldn't be secretive what happened. Everybody would know what she just did. And it's expensive. The, the scripture even says it's about a year's worth of wages to buy this perfume. Can you imagine? Can you imagine taking everything you've earned for a year and just in one moment using it? Just in, in one moment. But this is, this is Mary's response. She's understood. Like, they had this interaction after, Jesus's, uh, after Lazarus' resurrection where she sees Jesus for who he is. She understands that he is the Messiah. He's the promised one. And so this is a natural response for her. This is an act of worship. And so as we go through the story today, I want to show you how different people respond based on who they see Jesus as. And Mary responds with worship. Mary responded with worship because she understood this is being expensive as it is, is is nothing at the feet of Jesus. I will pour out all I have. I like to think that Judas and so many people viewed this as a waste, but when you see Jesus for who he is, what is often viewed as a waste is just worship. It's just worship. That we would come and say, God, I will waste it all on you, that I'll give you everything I have, that, that there is nothing too good, there's nothing off limits, because you are worthy. You're worthy of my worship. There's nothing I would hold back. I'll give you everything, this extravagant worship. When we see Jesus for who he really is, when we see him as king, when we see him as Messiah, when we see him as Lord, we respond with extravagant worship. Extravagant worship. I think of David dancing and acting foolishly and his wife being like, I really wish you would not do that. And that's just what worship is like sometimes. You stop caring what everyone else thinks and you care solely about what God thinks. 
You care about what, what is the worship that he's looking for? What does he desire of me? We'll talk about that more in a minute. Let's jump over to Mark's account of this story. In Mark 11, starting in verse 1, he says, As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, which is where we just read he just was. That's where he was. That's where the dinner party was. And Jesus sent two of them ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As soon as you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, what are you doing? Just say, the, Lord's ne- the Lord needs it and I will return it soon. I love this. And this is actually very prophetic. There's this whole thing, this whole Passion Week from Passover to the resurrection is filled with prophecy. It's steeped in, in the Old Testament. And it's hard to even unpack that all in just a couple messages. But I encourage you to dig in. Get a Bible that has little cross-references and look up those passages that it says it's referencing. And it'll enrich your understanding of what's happening here. But one of the passages that's taking place is Zechariah 9.9. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And Jesus, in this moment, is fulfilling a prophecy. And most people aren't even aware that it's happening. We'll get to that in a little bit. But he says, all right, guys, disciples, I need a couple of you to go and get a donkey, one that no one's ridden. I'm the Messiah. I have perfect relationship with the Father, so I know where it's going to be. You're just going to find it in this town, untie it, bring it to me. If anybody says, what are you doing? Just be like, the Lord needs it. Some of you are like, that's my application for the day. I'm just going to go steal something and be like, God needs it. No, that is not a good application from the text. That is not how you're supposed to interpret scripture. But what they do is they immediately go and obey. They're just like, all right, which to me, reading this, after I've been reading through the Gospels, I'm like, wow, they just did it. First try. Way to go, disciples. Most of the time, they're like, are you sure? What about this? How are we supposed to feed all these 5,000 people? Like, have you thought about this? Like, they're always having questions. By now, they're like, let's just go do it. They've been walking with Jesus long enough that their response isn't to question him. It's just obedience. It's just to go. He's like, guys, I need you to go do this thing that on the surface, if we actually think about it, he's just saying, go take this donkey. They're just like, all right, if that's what you want me to do, I'm going to go do it. Because they're starting to see Jesus for who he is. They're starting to understand that he really is Lord. He is the promised Messiah. He is the king. And when you understand that he's the king, you're like, I will obey. I will trust, even when it doesn't make sense to me. Even when I don't have the full picture. Even if I don't know what it will look like. I mean, picture this. If this was modern day and you were out doing some yard work and somebody rolled up and walked into your garage and just started getting in your car and you were like, what are you doing? And they're just like, the Lord needs it. That would be a very unique scenario. You'd be like, what? What? But there's something that's happening here where the disciples are just like, we're just going to go do it because if Jesus is telling us to do it, it's going to work out. We've seen that. The last three years of his ministry, he's like, guys, let's do this. This is how we're going to pray. This is how we're going to act. And it doesn't always make sense, but it always works out because Jesus is in perfect relationship with the Father. And we just need to trust him and take him at his word. And I'm like, what would that look like for us just to take him at his word? 
What if we read passages like Matthew 5, like we did this morning, and he says, don't worry, don't be anxious, and we were actually like, I mean, if you say you're going to take care of it, if you say I can trust you, I, I actually will. That we don't explain our way out of it and be like, our situation is unique, or this is what's happening, that we're like, God, I'm just going to take you at your word. What if we started reading all of Scripture like that? God, if you said it, I believe it. I don't see how it will work out. It doesn't really make sense in my situation, but I'm going to obey. All of culture might be saying this, but, but if this is what your word says, I, I'm going to trust that. I'm just going to take you at your word, God. I'm just going to believe you. The two disciples left and found the colt standing in the street, tied outside the front door, just like Jesus had said. They go. They don't ask questions. They're in the middle of fulfilling a prophecy that they don't even know they're fulfilling. Going back to John 12, we'll hop around in the Gospels. I love hearing their different perspectives and retelling of the story. In John 12, it says, Jesus found a young, a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written. They actually, John quotes uh, the Old Testament, what we just read. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had to be done to him. The disciples didn't have full understanding yet. They still didn't totally understand what was about to take place this week with the death and resurrection of Christ. And they didn't understand that this moment that was happening with the, the cult was actually the unfolding of prophecy from hundreds of years before. But they didn't need the understanding. They were willing to obey anyway. They didn't have the full picture. How often are we like, God, we need the full picture. I need to understand what you're doing before I obey you. The disciples were willing to go and be part of the fulfillment of this prophecy, even when they didn't understand what was happening. Mary saw Jesus and worshiped. The disciples see Jesus and trust. They trust him. They trust that his word is good and true. I wonder if we're willing to do the same, to trust blindly, to have faith when we can't see what's next. I mean, trust is, is similar to faith. They're, they're like pretty close to each other. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things we don't see. It takes risk to step out in faith. When I think of faith, I think of childlike faith, like Jesus talks about it. Just that blind trust. We have three kids eight, six, and three, and they all have different unique wirings and personalities, and some of them are really quick to trust. All of them trust us, but they have a different tolerance to fear and risk. And I think of going to the playground, one of our kids would be pretty hesitant to like first try stuff. They would need that, that coaching, that like, hey, you can do it. It's going to be safe. It's going to be fine. And then one of our kids had reckless faith. And they were like, I'm jumping off the monkey bars even though I'm two years old. And we're like, don't do that. Like, that is reckless. But I think that's what faith looks like sometimes. She was confident we were always going to catch her. She was like, dad's right there. He's going to catch me. It'll be fine. I think when we see Jesus for who he is, it leads us to trust, which leads to obedience. It leads us just to doing what he says. The writer of Hebrews says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. That there's this connection between faith and trust that leads to obedience, and that obedience pleases God. 
I mean, I think if we actually believe that Jesus is king, that he is God in the flesh, that he is the creator of the universe, we should have a desire to please him, to do what he says, to take him at his word and, and walk in obedience when it makes sense to us and when it doesn't. When we understand the full picture and when we only see part of it. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. Paul, he's writing a letter to the Romans. And he says this in the first chapter. He says, through him we received grace and apostleship. Paul's like, I've got grace. I'm called to this. Called to the Gentiles. He's like, that's what God's asked me to do. To the obedience that comes from faith for his namesake. That phrase, just obedience that comes from faith. That you can tell when someone's faith is genuine because it leads to action. It's not proof. You're not earning anything. We're saved by grace through faith. There's no work you can do. There's nothing you can do to earn pleasure or favor with God. He's already in love with you and and paid for your sin through the cross. And if you just come to him and receive that freely in grace, he forgives you. And through faith. But Paul is saying that there's an obedience that naturally comes from faith. That faith starts to look like something. It starts to work itself out in our life. That obedience is a result of faith. What I love is that God always has our in good intent, he has good intentions for us. Like, he loves us. It might seem like, I don't know, if God's saying I can't do that or I have to do this, it's like, is he even for me? And we know throughout Scripture, he's like, I'm for you. I'm with you. I love you. And we see that actually when we walk in obedience, it leads to blessing. Jesus even says that. There's this moment in the Gospels, and Luke records it in chapter 11, and they're like, Isn't your mom so blessed? Isn't Mary like so blessed because she gave birth to the Savior? And Jesus replies, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. And we're like, God, wouldn't it be so cool if you did something amazing through my life? Like, wouldn't it, I'd be so blessed if I was married, like, if you did something amazing, if you did something in my life that's so incredible. And Jesus is like, you want to know what's blessed? Obedience. Doing what I say leads to blessing. Living the life that's patterned after the way of Jesus is is where blessing shows up. Jesus starts his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, listing all of these ways to be blessed. And really, it's just doing what he did. Living a life patterned after him. being, Being meek and humble and pursuing righteousness and being willing to be persecuted for faith and living a life of obedience. When we start to see Jesus for who he is, it it calls for a response in our life. It calls for us to be like Mary and say, God, I've seen what you've done, who you are. There is nothing I will hold back from you. I will waste everything for worshiping you. I will worship you with all that I have. It leads the disciples saying, I don't fully understand what's going on yet. I don't see the big picture, but I'm going to go. If you said it, I believe it. It leads to trust and obedience. So going back to Mark and what's going on in the story, the two disciples left and found it. They untie it, and some bystanders demanded, what are you doing untying the colt? It's pretty much a response we'd expect, right? It's pretty gentle, honestly. You're like, hey, what are you doing? Like, you're literally stealing that? They said what Jesus had told them to say, and they were permitted to take it. I love that. 
There's just something so beautiful about obedience opens doors that would not otherwise be opened. Obedience does something. It it just changes things. It's what we're called to do that when we do it, God blesses it. He's with us. And and I love thinking about this from the owner's standpoint, the bystander standpoint, where we're being like, if this is if this is the Lord, if the Lord needs it, I have open hands for it. If God's asking, if He's asking me to participate, I, I have open hands. I love that they're just like, okay, take it. That's fine. That's that's some big trust. The donkey owner sees Jesus and has open hands. He responds by saying, I will sacrifice. If you want something I have, use it, God. I think of the story of Moses, and it's before he's the Moses we know. He's on Mount Sinai, that same place where we were just talking about Elijah was and met with God, and he's there, and he's like, well, how are people going to know? Like, how are people going to know that you're calling me to do this? And God asks him a question, and it kind of stands out to me when I think about this principle. God says, what's in your hand? He says, a staff. And then God's like, throw it on the ground. And you know, you know what happens there. Miracles start to happen with the staff. It, it changes into something else and changes back into a staff. And I think so often that's all God's asking us for. He's saying, what's in your hand? What do you already have that I can use? We see this pattern throughout Scripture. We see it with Moses. We see it with Jesus feeding the 5,000. He's like, what do you guys already have? We have a few fish and a few loaves. Like, we don't have a lot. But he likes to start with what we have. He likes to say, what do you have? What can you worship me with? Mary comes with what she has, the perfume, the nard. We can come and just say, God, here, my hands are open. I'm going to worship you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to obey you, and I'm going to have open hands. Whatever I have is yours. My gifts, my time, my resources, my talents, my, my abilities, whatever you want, God. My donkey, if you need it, I don't have one, but I, you can have whatever is mine. I have open hands, Lord. I think that's what he's asking. I think this is, this is how we live a life patterned after obedience, after faith, after trust, after worship, is just saying, God, I'm going to give you what I have, and then whatever you want to do with it, you do with it, and then I'm going to just come again and say, God, what do you need? What do you want me to do? I'm here to serve. We talked about this in our Dream Team huddle this morning. We were like, whatever God has given you, this is 1 Peter 4, he's like, whatever gift he's entrusted you with, steward it as good stewards of God's grace. That, that actually taking what God's given us is just a form of stewardship. Saying, God, all I have is yours. There's, there's no thing that's off limits. I'm just going to steward it, and you, you do what you want with it, God. I'm here. The, the church is a result of that. Like, us worshiping God together today on Palm Sunday is a result of, of us just sitting there and saying, God, what do you want us to do? We don't have everything. We don't have a lot of resources, but, you know, we feel you've called us. We feel you've gifted us in a unique way, and and we feel like you're telling us to go, so we're going to go. We're going to give up what we have. We're going to give up security. We're going to give up, like, job security. We're, we're all in if this is what you're saying. Nothing in our hand is off limits. We just went through the, the life of Elijah together, and I would love to preach on Elisha right afterwards, and there's some really cool handoff. And Elijah goes to Elisha and throws his coat on him, and he's like, follow me, and Elisha's like, all right, I'm all in. And he burns his farming equipment. 
He's just like, I'm all in. There is no coming back. There's no like safety net to be like, well, if it doesn't work out, like I'll just go back to what I was doing. The disciples drop their nets and follow Jesus. He's like, you want to be fishers? I'm going to make you fishers of men. That there's something about just saying, God, I will, I will follow you when it makes sense with whatever I have. I'm all yours. They brought the colt to Jesus. We'll pick back up in Mark eleven seven, And threw their garments over it, and he sat on it, once again giving them what he had. Many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others spread leafy branches they had cut in the fields, palm branches, palms representing royalty and, and understanding to an extent that he is king. They offered what they had in worship, and he came in, king of kings, lord of lords, riding on a donkey. He was a leader Yet he had humility. I mean, Zechariah says lowly. He was a king, but he was humble. We have a high priest who can relate with us in every way, who understands what we're going through. He comes riding in, and he's in the center of the procession. This is verse 9. And the people all around him were shouting, Praise God, blessing on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessing on the coming kingdom, our ancestor David. Praise God in the highest heaven. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Hosanna, as Marisa was saying earlier, Hosanna just means save us, deliver us. God, we need you. It's quoting Psalm 118 where it says, Lord, save us. That verse 25, save us, is the same word for Hosanna. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. For the house of the Lord, we will bless you. This whole narrative story is filled with scripture from the Old Testament. It's fun. If you want, you can trace Daniel's prophecies through and see the timeline of what God is doing. And it's incredible. But they're quoting, God, this is, this is you. Save us. We need you. Hosanna. Grant us success. Bless us. Save us, Lord. I think praise is, is a way to enter into his presence. That there's something about praise that creates space for God to move in our life. He's already there and he's already moving, but there's something special about worship. It says in Psalms, God inhabits the praises of his people. That there's something tangible God does when we worship and praise him. And they worship him as king, riding in on the donkey. They had expectations, though, of what that was going to mean. They thought this was going to be, God, you're taking over, finally. You're going to do what we've been waiting for you to do. You're going to change things. You're going to dismount the government and make Israel great. And all of these things that you're going to do, God, we're going to, we're going to see change that we're looking for. They didn't understand that this wasn't the, the kingdom that Jesus was coming to, to build. That the kingdom he was coming to build is the kingdom of God, and it, it was spiritual and subversive and, and taking over one person at a time. And it was coming, and the way into the kingdom is, is narrow. And Jesus died for that kingdom. He didn't come and reign and rule with an iron fist. He came and gave his life. They didn't see that coming, though. They had expectations about how it was going to go. Matthew 21, jumping over to Matthew's account of the story, it says, When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? 
who is this? That there was a buzz going around. Who, who is, is this the Messiah? Is this just a prophet? Is he just the priest? Is he just a good teacher? Like, who is he? And that's part of my question for us this morning is, who is he in your life? Because when we understand that he's king, it, it, it calls us to worship, it calls us to trust, it calls us to obedience, it calls us to open hands. The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. They still didn't have a full understanding. In one of the accounts, Jesus has a moment where he actually weeps after entering the city. Because he knows they don't fully understand. That they're looking for something that he wasn't coming to do. He was coming to offer something better. He was coming to be the fulfillment of prophecy. He was the Messiah, but not the Messiah that they expected. After this moment, Jesus enters the temple courts. Mark's version has the the fig tree story split in this, but we're going to look at it from Matthew really quick. And it says, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. The religious people saw Jesus and they responded with anger. They were annoyed. They're like, we don't like this. This is pushing up against what we've already had in place. This is not what we're looking for. This is not what we're expecting. We don't like it. If you don't view Jesus as king and you just view him as an interruption to the way you want to do things, you respond with anger. You get annoyed. You don't respond the way that we're called to with worship and praise and open hands. I love this story of Jesus cursing the fig tree right after that because it just stands, it seems so different than the rest of the things Jesus does. Let's continue reading in verse 18. Early in the morning as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but you can also say to this mountain, Go throw yourself in the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. And this, for a lot of us, is a confusing passage. Like, why is Jesus cursing fig trees? This is the only destructive miracle that we see in all of the Gospels. Everything else is life-producing and multiplying and all of these things. But but he speaks to the fig tree and he's like, you're never going to produce fruit again. And it withers. Mark splits the story in two. It's actually as he's walking into the temple that he curses the tree. And then he comes out of the temple and they see it withered. And I think Mark is just trying to show us what it was. It was an object lesson. It was an illustrated sermon. It was like some of those weeks where we have props up on stage just to help illustrate the point. And Jesus is saying, this tree looks productive. There's leaves, there's activity, but it's not producing any fruit. It's not doing what it's intended for. And the fact that Mark sandwiches it 
outside of the temple story is Jesus is saying the temple is full of activity. It looks productive, but it's not producing what it was supposed to. There's no fruit. The temple is barren. The temple's not producing anything. That's why he's so upset. He's flipping over tables. He's, he's healing the, the lame and the blind, but he's like, guys, this is not what it is. You've turned it into something it wasn't supposed to be. He chastises the money changers, and what was happening is this is the week of Passover. So to get a little bit of the historical picture, everybody's coming. There's three festivals a year that required the, the Jews in the surrounding area to come to Jerusalem. And this was one of them, Passover week. So everybody's coming to Jerusalem. It's why Jesus is coming and his disciples. And they're all coming to celebrate Passover, which is going to happen in just a few days. And when he's there and everybody's coming, they're, they're not bringing their sacrifices with. They're not coming with a lamb. They're not coming prepared to, to do all those things in the temple. So they would go to the temple and the, the temple had different courts. And there was all of these different layers that you were allowed to go depending on on where you were at, if you were a man or a woman, if you're Jewish or, or a Gentile. And so the court of the Gentiles was really big, 350 yards by 500 yards, five football fields by three and a half football fields. It's huge. And in this court, people would come and, and they'd be like, I brought some money, I need to exchange it for the local currency, and they'd get ripped off. And then after they got ripped off, they'd go and be like, I need to buy some doves or a lamb or whatever I need for the sacrifice, and they'd get ripped off again. And Jesus is like, guys, people are coming to worship. People are coming to offer sacrifices. And you've turned this into something it wasn't supposed to be. You've made it about money. You've made it about other things. You've made it about religious activity and lost the heart. It's supposed to be a, a place of prayer, of worship. The temple is barren. There's leaves. There's religious activity, but there's no fruit. And I think when we see Jesus as just another teacher we can go about religion. We can go about just doing the things that we've always known to do. But we don't actually produce fruit in our life. We don't, we don't totally surrender in obedience. We're more just like, this, makes, this is the way we've done it. This is, this is just church as normal or, or religious activity as normal. And Jesus comes and, and speaks that and the fig tree withers and it's symbolic of him doing away with the, the old covenant. The new covenant is about to be ushered in where you enter God's presence not through the temple and the courts but, but through a relationship with Christ. That he's coming to usher in something brand new. And the disciples are kind of confused and they're like, why are the fig tree wither so fast? And Jesus makes it about faith. He's saying if your faith is in the right spot, you'll see things. You'll see miracles. You'll see the mountain cast into the sea. And that's just an example of, of him saying, radical difference happens when we put our faith in the right place. Not in our activity, not in our appearance of life, the leaves, but in the actual fruitfulness, faith that is in the right place. When we see Jesus for who he is, it should lead us to worship. To say extravagantly, God, everything I have is yours. It should lead us to trust that says, I don't understand fully, but if you said it, I'm going to go do it. It should lead to open hands saying, God, if you need it, I have it and I offer it freely to you. But when you don't see Jesus for who he is, you're satisfied with things as they are. You're like, Jesus, don't step on my toes. The religious are like, we don't want to change anything. It's in this moment that they're like solidified. We really have to do something about Jesus. We have to get rid of this guy. 
The way you see Jesus changes how you respond to him. Do you see him as king? Do you see him as Lord? Do you see him as Savior? Paul says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. If you understand that he is the authority, it's naturally going to lead to change, but that first step of change is just saying, God, I trust you. I'm going to follow you. Nothing's off limits. All I have is yours. I want to worship you, trust you, obey you, and have open hands before you. You might be watching online or listening, and you've actually never made that decision to follow Jesus. You've kind of been in that space where you're like figuring out, do I, do I trust him? Is he who he says he is? And I just want to encourage you, let today be the day of salvation. Let today be the day that you say, save me, Hosanna. God, I need you. In that moment, God pr promises eternal life, that you're born again, that you become a new creation from the inside out. The Pharisees were always worried about working from the outside in and making sure that they looked good and acted the right way and said the right things and did the right things. Jesus is working to change people from the inside out, to change them from the inside out, to change their heart, their motive, their desire to see him as Lord, because that naturally changes everything else. And if that's you today, you've never made that decision. It's as simple as saying, God, I believe you. I believe that Jesus lived the perfect life, that he is the son of God, that he died for my sins and rose again, conquering death and hell and the punishment that I deserved. I'm going to follow you. And it's patterning your life after that. It's repenting. Repentance is just changing direction. <clears throat> but even if we've already made that decision, which is most of us in the room, We've said, I'm following Jesus. I wonder if we'd reevaluate and say, what are the areas that we've said, you're king of my life except for here? You're king of my life except I'm not willing to give this up. I'm not willing to have open hands here. My worship will only go so far. My obedience goes as far as my understanding. I'm, I'm willing to follow you to this extent. If we truly see Jesus as king, you're saying, I'm all in. Nothing I have is off limits, God. So I want us just to pray and, and go before the Lord and say, God, search me and know me. God, if there's anything, I, I, I'm sorry. Would you change my heart and my attitude? So God, we do come before you right now in this moment saying we need you. God, we see you as King of Kings. Hosanna, you are the Lord, the only one who can save us. There is no eternal life apart from you, God. God, we we confess that there are times where we hold things off limits. Maybe it's our time, maybe it's our serving, maybe it's our resources, God. Maybe it's something that you've put on our heart personally, God, but we just come to you right now and say, we're sorry. We confess that to you, we give it to you and say, would you once again be the Lord of my entire life? Would there be nothing I hold back from you, God? Because I see that if you are who you say you are, I have no right and that you, if you really do love me, this is actually the best thing for me. That trusting you and obeying you, it leads to blessing God. I want right relationship. I want intimacy with you. So I'm choosing to follow you. I'm making that decision again today. And I pray that you'd help me to make it again tomorrow. And again on Tuesday, God, that daily we would make that decision to live open-handed, full of worship, trusting you in faith and obeying you every step of the way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We would love to hear about what God is doing in your life. To share your story or a prayer request, simply hit contact on our website. You can also support the ministry of Hope Culture Church by visiting hopeculturechurch.com slash give. We hope you have a great week.